welcome everyone to this next in the series of Regen's Transforming Energy podcasts. I'm Madeline Greenhalgh and I'm going to be talking to my colleague Sophie Winnie today about the sustainability of the battery supply chain and the battery life cycle. We're also going to be talking to a colleague David Sturmies from the Fair Cobalt Alliance about some of the work he's been doing over the last few years. So welcome everyone, thanks for tuning in. Uh, So I'm here with my colleague Sophie Winnie today to talk about the sustainability of the battery life cycle. I'm Madeline Greenhalgh, I'm the Policy and Advocacy Manager for Regen, and I also run the Electricity Storage Network, which is what we're recording this podcast for today, for the Electricity Storage Network Annual Marketplace. So welcome if you're listening from there. So Sophie and I are going to have a bit of a chat today about um, the battery life cycle uh, and some of the issues that are raised through the and the the opportunities that are raised through the the whole of the battery life cycle. Uh, So I just want to give a little bit of context before I bring Sophie in, uh, just to tell you why we're talking about this today. Well, why why are we talking about storage? Well, storage is super important. We know it's essential for meeting net zero. Uh, We can't avoid the fact that storage is a burgeoning industry right now and it's just going to be increasing in the future. So we know that batteries make up a big part of that, lithium-ion batteries in particular. I think at the moment we have a quarter of our storage deployed in the UK is lithium-ion batteries. If you want to know a bit more about the storage pipeline, you can tune into Ray's podcast, um, which has also been recorded for the marketplace, looking in a bit more detail at those numbers of what sorts of deployment we're seeing in the storage industry in the UK right now. So we know that storage is a growing and burgeoning industry. We're right at the start of its growth at the moment, not just in the UK, but globally as well. And we also know that creating a new industry like that comes with a lot of opportunities. We're seeing many of those opportunities being realised right now, uh, but it also comes with challenges as well throughout that whole life cycle. So Sophie and I are going to talk in this podcast, considering these issues through the framing of that of that life cycle. So looking at that sort of cradle to grave um, at those at the different opportunities and issues that get thrown up when you when you talk about you know the, the the very start the development of the batteries the extracting of the minerals how you manufacture it how you run the batteries all the way through to how you dispose of and recycle the batteries as well so really looking at it through that kind of interconnected global circular lifestyle to help us understand the different opportunities and challenges and how to address them. So this is a topic that the Electricity Storage Network has been debating for some time. We've got a working group on the topic, the Sustainability, Safety and Supply Chain Working Group. Uh, so today, we're going, Sophie and I are going to be touching on many of the issues that our members have raised through this working group over the last couple of years. So before I bring in Sophie, uh, I just want to put a little caveat on this for people listening. We're talking today about large batteries for power. That's what the ESN focuses on. Um, so that's either um, batteries connected to the grid or as backup power. But we're not talking about EVs or smaller portable batteries. They're really important too. They have lots of similar issues. And we absolutely should be joining up with those in the future as an industry. But today we are talking from the perspective of those large utility scale batteries that are used for power. So with that out of the way, um, with me talking far too much as per usual, I'm going to uh, hand over to my colleague Sophie. So hi Sophie, welcome to hey. the podcast. Is this Thanks your first Regen podcast? It is my first Regen podcast. I'm a bit nervous, very excited though. <laughs> it's such an interesting topic. I've been thinking about it for a while now and yeah, it, it gets so much media attention and I think that it's something that I've wanted to talk about for that reason because it's got so much more nuance I think than what the media is letting on and so yeah I think it's going to be an interesting podcast yeah yeah it'd be great and something that Sophie and I are both very passionate about and um, we talk about a lot so for anyone that knows us apologies this is us 
banging on again about the same old things but um it's su super fascinating topic so it's plenty to get through um but as i mentioned Sophie, we said we were going to look at this through that lens of the um battery life cycle which i know is something you've mm -hmm. put quite a lot of thought into it might not make a huge amount of sense to someone listening so i wonder mm -hmm. if you could talk us through the life cycle itself just briefly just what, what sure. does that life cycle look like well at a high level i think um before you start extracting uh, minerals um, there's actually the research and development stage, so where you're de defining um, what the exact composition of your batteries is and what the use is. It's going to depend on what your battery chemistry is. Then the next stage is the extraction phase, and that's uh, where we do see some of um, the human and environmental abuses um, coming out quite strongly. So what, what sort of things are you talking about extracting there, Sophie? What, what do you mean by extraction as well? So we're talking about mining here, which for materials like cobalt, which is the one that's talked about most um, commonly, they use a lot of artisanal small scale mining. And so that's very labour intensive. And that's why you end up getting a lot of the um, human rights abuses associated with it. And also the environmental abuses, because there's much less standards and um, people tracking how those mm. mines are functioning. It's complicated subject. So I think we'll get into a little bit more of that. In a little while, we're also going to be talking to David um, from the Fair Cobalt Alliance, who has a lot of expertise in, in that area. We'll talk, come back to that one, I think. But if you could take us through maybe some of the rest of what happens after you've sure. extracted the minerals. <laughs> so uh, then it passes through many, many hands. But at a high level, this is it's all just the rest of the su supply chain. But the mineral has to go through several processing stages until you end up with a battery. And that happens globally. Um, and yeah, like I said, passes through many hands. And so the transparency is really the key challenge here. And it's not something that the battery industry is alone in having to tackle. It's very much the nature of the world that we live in, that the supply chains are global. Uh, and then once we do end up with a battery, then it's all about using it. And that's really where we have the most control, isn't it? Because the batteries are sitting right here in the UK and we're benefiting from it and we're the ones in control of how to use it. And then the final thing is end of life. So that's all about recycling and reusing the batteries, actually, before you even get onto recycling. And again, here, that is something we could have more control over. But mm. right now, we actually don't do a lot of that, do we? Mm. Yeah, so it's definitely an industry that seems a bit untapped, mm. I think, at the moment for for um, storage for batteries in particular. Mm. That's great. So I think that's that's really useful to look at it through that cradle to grave mentality, that word that you often use so for the circular economy, <laughs> circularity of uh, of the battery and looking yeah. at it in that way, not just as a product that is created and then disposed of. It's a whole circular exactly. problem. Because I mean, really, why why I'm interested in this is from the sustainability angle in terms of, you know, making sure that the businesses that we create are based on sustainable ethics but I think what the circular economy principle brings in is that there is a business case here we just need to make sure that the the policy aligns so that that business case is realized and then you know once we can do that then um, there'll be an incentive to recycle and reuse these batteries and yeah absolutely no, I, can, <laughs> I completely agree could you pick out a couple of bits where you think there are really big opportunities but also challenges as well um where you sure. can focus well, on I think the, there's a massive opportunity in the research and development stage. We do pride ourselves here in the UK on our research and development, and there's a massive opportunity to build that for the battery industry. And 
Yeah, and the Faraday Institute are doing a great job at that at the moment. There's also a massive opportunity for the people who benefit from having these minerals locally to um, build their economies using um, the profits from these minerals. And while while it is also creating these problems, I think it's important to acknowledge that there, there's a massive opportunity for people to benefit from yeah. the growth of these industries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This isn't just about picking holes and finding problems. This is saying, well, if we do this right, mm. there's a whole look at the look at the size of that life cycle and the amount mm. of jobs that are created, the amount of economic benefits there are across the world. This isn't just the UK. This is totally. a huge global life cycle. I think that's a really important point, Sophie, to say that if we do this right, it creates wealth, it creates opportunities, mm-hmm. it creates jobs and, and it benefits communities all over the world. Um, so that yeah, this really it's really good to to touch on on that. I wanted to come back to kind of the end of the life cycle as well that the recycling and reuse we mentioned yeah. that a little bit but I, I do I agree that this is a bit of a there's so many opportunities here but we just really haven't grasped that yet and mm-hmm. it, I think is it fair to say we've not grasped it in Europe and the UK yet but maybe other parts of the world have um, and we're not, not quite there yet but there's definitely a lot we could do. I think you're totally right there's 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 a big argument that not enough has been done to ramp up the recycling and reuse Um, of batteries, especially considering how much we are expecting it to grow. There are some small scale projects and more so in the trial stages. I'm aware of a couple of companies that do um, reuse electric vehicle batteries for domestic and for grid storage. So that's a really interesting connection there between those two industries. But it's not the norm. And uh, I have I have seen people talk about the EU proposing for um, changes to battery regulations. So for example, the people who manufacture the batteries, should they be responsible for recycling it? And I think a scheme like that would be really great to see in the UK. I'm just not sure if we will see it, but maybe that's something that we should be advocating for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we can say that it's a really good thing. And so Sophie and I, you will we'll sit here and say that it's a great thing to have this circular economy, that no waste, um, and that we're, you know, it's, it's looking at doing all the right things environmentally uh, in terms of human rights and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, for a lot of people, these minerals have value mm-hmm. and they're rare minerals. They're difficult mm-hmm. to extract. There's a finite supply of them. Mm-hmm. If you are able to extract that value again from mm. once you've once that product has, has been used and once it's come to the end of life, but we're not putting the value on that. It's cheaper to just throw mm. it away, and um, it's, it's actually cheaper to just get it off of our shores, isn't it? And, and yeah. export the problem somewhere else. But we're, so we're seeing it as a problem to export and to to put elsewhere. But actually, there's a huge amount of value in that mm-hmm. uh, in in that thing that you can holding your hands yeah I mean there, there's there's I've, I've also seen the opinion that the value will um will go up as um as the demand for it increases and therefore that it will happen automatically we won't need that um supporting policy because it that will happen and then also perhaps increasing like a carbon border tax so m- materials that have had to be flown around the world several mm. times they'll become so much more expensive that again we'll need to see that value but I don't think we can rely on that necessarily. I think that's a really great way to make it make sense for businesses. But at the same time, we need to make sure that no batteries are going to waste for any reason. So I think it's going to be a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. And, we, you know, I think there's a 
argument that it will happen naturally uh, mm. but i think there's also a lot we can do to push that and make sure that yeah. you know as is the electricity storage network but as, as as a group of uk companies as the uk government we that we could be identifying things that we could do to push things in that direction and make mm -hmm. sure that happens um so yeah plenty to plenty to consider there and i think one of those real areas of of opportunity as well so something that you and i have talked about quite a bit sophie is what sort of influence we can have on any of these things and mm. we just said this is a massive global life cycle uh, it can feel a little bit daunting you and i sat here in a room in a corner of devon saying we must have a global impact on on you know batteries that are manufactured mm -hmm. in the depths of rural china or mm -hmm. um you know minerals that are being extracted in the depths of the congo you know it's, mm -hmm. it's really it can feel a bit difficult to go well what difference can i make i think that's a problem with the climate movement more, yes. more broadly isn't it to say how can i as one individual or as one small company or even a large company how can i make a difference to stuff that happens on the other side of the world so I know you've done quite a lot of thinking about where that influence lies for mm. us in the UK. I wondered if you could well, elaborate a bit. It's such a tough thing, isn't it? Because you don't want to absolve yourself of anything that occurs down downstream from you. But then it is a reality of the world that we live in that we we don't have direct control over everything. But that's kind of why I like thinking about it in this circular way, because, of course, they are intrinsically connected, all the points in the supply chain. And so in principle, this enables us to positively impact the life cycle if we just do the best we can in the bits that we have control over. Mm -hmm. So us here in the UK, we have a lot of control over the research and development stages. We've got a lot of control over the way we use the batteries and diversifying the kind of storage that we use so we're not reliant on one particular battery chemistry. And we also do have a little bit of control to start those conversations with the person next door in the su supply chain and to really encourage a more open um, and transparent supply chain. There are there are technologies being developed to enable that better transparency. But we talk about that a lot as well and like our bit in the ESN and how we can help improve that. Mm -hmm. But I totally appreciate that it's it's not going to fix itself overnight. So by focusing, yeah, on those areas that we've got more control over, and particularly now in the recycling industry, because that we don't do anything about that yet, I and mean, we totally should and could, yeah. then we can have a bit more impact on yeah. the whole life cycle. Yeah, and on those bits where we feel a bit further removed from. Yeah. Um, so if we can, if we can change our battery chemistries. Mm -hmm if we can diversify the types of st storage we're using, not just batteries, mm. if we can m prolong the life of the uh, of the battery by mm -hmm. using them in a better way, a more efficient way, and then if we can actually recycle them and keep that value uh, sort of at home or, you know, or even, you know, export some of that value, mm -hmm. reuse it, second life for batteries, I, th I feel like that's a whole load of different solutions there. And we've not even got to the part of saying, well, how do we how do we improve you know human rights yeah. issues in extracting environmental issues how do we improve the transparency of the supply chain and we should definitely do all those things but mm. you know there's a huge list there of things we could already do so that mm. already feels very positive um mm -hmm. things that we can make a change and that's why i think it's just super helpful to look at this life cycle as a whole circular thing and, and say this is actually all interconnected this mm -hmm. isn't just about one company or one part of the industry operating and in, interdependent from from the others so yeah super helpful I think to to talk through that uh, we have touched on extraction 
quite a lot. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think we'll go into that in a bit more detail later. We'll have a bit of a discussion. But earlier today, we did talk to our colleague David Sturmies from the Fair Cobalt Alliance uh, about his work. So we're going to skip to uh, seamlessly through the power of technology. We're going to skip to a little chat we have with David and then Sophie and I will be back to have a, a bit of a discussion and reflection on some of his points. So I'm here with David Sturmies from the Fair Cobalt Alliance and we're going to have a quick chat today uh, about some of the work that the Fair Cobalt Alliance and the Dragonfly Institute have been doing over the last few years, um, looking at some of the human rights issues uh, around mining uh, and how we can improve those on the ground. David, we've been talking to for the last year now, along with his colleague Dr Ashton Carter, uh, about some of the work that can be done on the ground to actually make some positive change. And we've been really enjoying having those conversations with them to, to understand how we can actually make some, have some direct action. Uh, so David leads the member engagement and strategic partnerships for the Fair Cobalt Alliance and he's going to talk us through a little bit today about what that means, what that actually does, so we can learn a little bit more about the practicalities of, of how we actually improve some of these difficult practices everyone is talking about at the moment. So hi David, nice to have you here. Hi Madeline, thanks for having me and it's a pleasure to, to connect on this important topic. Yeah, thanks David. Did you want to just give us a bit of a, a flavour for what the Fair Cobalt Alliance does and, and what your work involves um, and, and yeah, then we can have a bit of a discussion about that. So the Fair Cobalt Alliance is a multi-stakeholder initiative. That means that a, a group of organisations has come together across industry and, and non-profit actors that are dedicated to trying to solve some of the issues surrounding the production of cobalt. Cobalt is used in, in battery metals um, and is actually quite a useful mi- mineral because it helps optimize the, the lifetime of the battery and helps us recharge batteries more often. But it's very concentrated in the Democratic of Republic of Congo. That means that in practice, 70% of annual production last year came from the DRC. And even not just in production figures, in terms of reserves, more than 50% of cobalt come from the DRC. And the DRC is one of the poorest countries on earth, despite having um, enormous mineral wealth. And so back in 2016, Amnesty actually came out with a report that pointed out some of the challenges um, surrounding cobalt production, which are linked to artisanal and small scale mining. That means mining with the most rudimentary tools possible, really with a hammer and a chisel underground, often in very hazardous and dangerous working conditions. Um, And unfortunately, also often linked to child labor. And after that, uh, a shockwave went through media and, and newspapers and, and NGOs that tried to hold companies across the supply chain responsible for benefiting from, from these unacceptable conditions. And yeah, that, that led us to, to thinking, how can we actually get engaged without abandoning the issue at hand, trying to be part of the solution, um, remediating some of these issues? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you described some really tricky challenges there uh, where these are the uh, global issues uh, you know they're, although they're based in, in one particular country that you're talking about there these are global issues that have a huge effect on lots of different people around the world so not not small challenges that you're trying to deal with there so uh, yeah it's really good to hear those described in that way but what sort of things do you find are you're doing then to, to combat some of that? Well, it starts with the realization that um, artisanal mining is actually not a fringe occurrence it's not exclusive to cobalt either. Um, There's more than 40 million people working in the artisanal mining sector, and it's something that is very common across Africa um, and also across the DRC specifically, and it's even embedded in their mining code. So we shouldn't try to abandon that 
the beauty of artisanal mining is that it has a very low entry barrier because you need to um, basically bring a hammer and a chisel to, to get started and, and that can provide an income to your family. And so we really believe that that's the starting point to see the potential, the untapped potential of, of that sector that is um, so crude in its nature right now. But if, if we can help refine that through the introduction of better management systems, but more importantly, safer infrastructure, better machines, etc., um, we can really help pivot the livelihoods of the people engaged in this sector. And, and we talk about about 250,000 people working in the cobalt sector at large. And we believe that these are much needed jobs in an area that is plagued by unemployment and where there's not a lot of other opportunities. And so a starting point for this was to see how can we engage with the sector at face value and then see how we can optimize what it holds in terms of potential and try to mitigate and remediate the issues that have been pointed out and continue to exist because so far um, too few initiatives have come up trying to change the situation on the ground. Mm. Yeah, that's why we were super interested in what you are doing because yeah, there's not that much that's happening out there that's actually trying to to make that change. So uh, it's really great to hear that. Um, I think it's interesting to reflect on that point you made about uh, this is how how important these industries are for livelihoods um, for people for families and for communities uh, i think one of the things that people often talk about as a solution potentially uh, to to these issues that you've described is to stop using cobalt you know scrub out artisanal small-scale mining because it's very dangerous stop using x company because they're really unethical etc um what do you think about that when when you hear those sorts of those solutions proposed do you think that's something worthwhile exploring or is that you take a different approach well i i understand the the knee-jerk reaction trying to look at these issues um and trying to engineer yourself out of the the problem at hand and anyone that has looked into into development or even the situation across central and and, and western africa will say that well things haven't improved significantly over the last 10, 20 years. Why, why would they now change in a short period of time? We, we can't afford to prolong this for another X number of years. And so I, I appreciate that thought, but a couple of reflections here. First, cobalt would need to be replaced by other minerals and every mineral comes with its own challenges. Um, we're talking about finite resources that need to be extracted from, from the earth and will have an impact on both environment and the communities. These impacts can be handled. I don't believe that mining is intrinsically bad, but they need to be managed well. And so you're just pushing the responsibility or the potential risk elsewhere. And admittedly, Congo is one of the more challenging sourcing environments. But at the same time, um, that's the beauty of it, then that it could, if you're doing it right, could really be a, a game changer for the people on the ground. Beyond that, the technology is not that far advanced. We have very ambitious climate targets and then that's what it comes down to um we had the the cop just recently and people confirming again that we want to prevent the the worst forms of, of global warming if we want to meet these we need to step over to evs and then have e-storage solutions for renewables um, that's the context obviously that that you've been looking at at cobalt for energy storage and, and so the cobalt lithium batteries or lithium ion batteries are the most advanced um, for scaling these solutions as quickly as, as, as necessary. And so maybe in five or 10 years, there's a technology that can rival this. But for now, our safest bet for making that transition is continuing to work with cobalt. And then interestingly, mm -hmm. because circularity is part of what we should be talking about, 
as we are continuing to use cobalt, we are building up a feedstock of cobalt that can be recycled in the future. That means that we no longer solely rely on mined cobalt, but for the next 10 to 20 years, mined cobalt is going to be key to, to um, meeting the ever-growing demand for, for these technologies, because not only the West, but also all of, of the global South, Africa and in Asia have a growing appetite for renewable and clean energy, and we cannot afford to leave any one country behind in that transition. So cobalt is really a strong ally in trying to achieve our goals, having batteries that do not need to be replaced that often. And if we can manage to do so, it actually helps us mine less other minerals that, because otherwise we might need to produce even more batteries. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with all, all of that. I, I think something picked up on you said mining is not intrinsically bad. And I think that's something that uh, certainly the, the climate and environmental movement of it can be easy to fall into that because we've seen the extractive industry do such terrible things in the past and are still doing, you know, the fossil fuel industry in particular in Africa and um, different countries have done this pretty badly. So we've been quite badly burned with the extractive industry. But mining is essential, as you say, you, you just laid out there exactly why we need to mine these minerals and why they're going to be essential to get us to that zero carbon future. So I think it's really important to recognise that this is an industry that must change uh, and can change. Um, and that's why it's really great to, to hear you talking about some of the practical things that that can get to that, because I think we're um, it's very easy to just put mining in the bin and say, well, we don't we don't want that anymore because the extractive industry is bad. But if we're going to get anywhere close to, to net zero, we have to we, we actually have an opportunity, I think, to say, well, this is a point where we particularly in the in the battery industry to say, well, it's a relatively new industry. Why? Let's start off well. Let's make this a sustainable uh, industry for the future. And we get to net zero. Um, we also have a really good, sustainable, thriving uh, industry supporting that at the same time. So I think let's let's talk about how we actually do that. I think that's the probably the question that people have from from definitely from the UK perspective, where we, you know Sophie and I have just been setting out the life cycle of that battery and um, and where we have influence here in the UK and where companies have influence. Um, it can feel quite daunting sitting at one end of that supply chain saying. How am I? How on earth am I going to have any influence on how those minerals ex are extracted way before they ever get near my my battery? So I wondered if you could talk through a little bit of how those companies uh, and individuals can have an impact when we're sat quite far away um, from the extraction process. Yeah, and allow me to just reflect with one sentence on, on your your commentary just now. Because I, I recently heard from someone teaching mining at, at a university here in Nairobi saying, if it wasn't grown, it was mined. And then that's their, their slogan that they operate on. And I think it's easy for us, especially in urban environments, to um, play down the, 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 to downplay the, the role of mining um, and the benefit that that brings to our society. Um, across human evolution, we've named the ages after the metals that have been most influential, um, as we did with the Bronze Age, for example. And we are now moving from a fossil fuel economy into a mineral-based economy, which will really rely not only on cobalt, but on, on graphite, on lithium, on manganese. And and we need to see that, that that's a tool that humanity can use for good, because that also comes with a lot of exciting opportunities for medical and technical innovation. So how, how do we go about this? Because um, we, we find downstream companies are often held responsible for what happens very far away. And then it, there's 
very complex supply chain in between. And at the same time, consumers are not willing to, to compromise on quality or price either. And then so I think looking at where this starts and then for a lot of people that are just listening to this now, it always starts with re reducing the, the demand that we have. So thinking about as a consumer, how can I try to avoid having to purchase new um, devices or, or things that I might not need um, reusing and yeah, reducing the, the use that we have? Because there's a immense pressure on the market right now. Um, the demand is expected to far outstrip the supply of material that's currently available. But then that means we need to, to have more supply and that might mean more mining, but more specifically, we mean more ethical supply, more responsible supply. And here um, we recently started using a phrase that I very much believe in saying responsible sourcing starts with taking responsibility to create the supply that we need. Because as long as we, we push the responsibility for the conditions upstream, to the next actor that is one step before us, it is not a realistic solution. And we know that from our own consumer experiences or, or Western factories that upgrades in sustainability are an investment. That's why governments provide subsidies to consumers to, to put uh, solar heating on the roof or, or any other interventions. And equally, if we want to improve mine sites, artisanal mines by sites specifically, those need investments. But if nobody's willing to pay more, who's going to actually finance these these changes? And often it's a chicken and egg problem where people, uh, where companies downstream are saying we'd be willing to pay extra if it was responsibly produced, but nobody is willing to take the risk of actually financing these improvements because there's no proof that there will actually be a market for doing so. Quite the opposite. We've seen a lot of companies publicly state that they'd rather not source from the DRC. And, and so that's really a difficult um, message then to to communicate to to someone that you're trying to convince to invest into these changes and our solution to that is pooling resources and pooling demand because a small company can't dictate in their supply chain what needs to be done but as you come together as a collective and that's the idea of the fair cobalt alliance as a multi-stakeholder initiative is that that your voice is very much amplified by by every member that um, joins your movement and here we need to signal to the market that artisanally mined cobalt is welcome in our supply chains, given that it's subject to improvement at the mine sites in the DRC. And so we need to give them a chance. And important here is also the realization that people haven't been forced to work in these mine sites. It's a livelihood that they appreciate having. Um, as I said, there's high unemployment. Um, there's not a lot of other accessible livelihoods to them. So a lot of people working in these mine sites are actually earning more than they would have in a, in a different um, livelihood. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. That doesn't say that that justifies the working conditions. It doesn't say that um, they're earning enough, but it does mean that we contextualize this to the local um, conditions. And we actually acknowledge and respect that people want to work in this sector and try to create dignified working conditions um, where people are fairly compensated for the hard work that they're doing and where opposite um, on the other side of that, that remuneration is not a uh, life or death risk that they have to take every time that they go to work. Yeah, I think there's some there's some really positive things in there that people can hopefully take away and feel a bit more a bit more energized about when they're when they're feeling a bit powerless and they're when they're quite far away from that 
So there's hopefully some, I think that idea of collective action, that's exactly what we at the Electricity Storage Network want to do on our own turf as well. You know, that, that idea of, of being stronger as a whole and uh, and having that collective action rather than necessarily being responsible for it all by yourself is, is a really powerful one and probably quite true across the whole climate movement, to be honest. But uh, yes, that's a re- really powerful one for people to take away. I think I'd love to sit and chat with you more about kind of the standards and, and how we can use standards and transparency, perhaps to 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 make some of that happen maybe it's a bit further up the supply chain perhaps on a on a global level but i think we'll probably run out of time a bit a bit for that so maybe we'll come back to that another time david but because uh, i know you have really great expertise on on seeing those standards playing out in other industries and being done well but uh, yeah i wondered if we could just finish up by sort of saying what you see next for this industry for for you is the fair cobalt alliance but also kind of looking a bit more broadly at it we spent most of the time talking about cobalt but obviously there's other minerals to and other materials at, at play here so i just wondered where you see what the next steps are really for taking this forward yeah so maybe a final reflection on cobalt it might have created a reputational risk or a headache to companies across the world but really the problems we are solving are problems that directly touch the lives of Congolese people. So key to all of that, and something I didn't stress enough before, is that any solutions we come up with need to be in partnership or in support of of Congolese actors, so that these processes and and changes are really owned by by local people, local organizations, um, in line with the vision of the government, which is seeking to professionalize the sector. And and so it's not imposing requirements, it's not imposing any um, expectations that are unreasonable, but it's enabling changes that we deem mutually beneficial. And, and that's really very much the, the language and then the approach that we've chosen in partnering with local civil society, but also local cooperatives and trying to make changes and enable these changes through financing, but also skills transfers. Now, as I said, I think two or three times already, cobalt is not the bad sheep in the minerals. <laughs> range um maybe maybe it's it stands out a bit for the severity of allegations that are are in there but it's really about having a comprehensive look at esg which looks at environmental impacts governance related impacts are are people contributing to the local economies sufficiently and social impacts and then so i hope that the fca can set an example um, that can inspire others working on, on lithium on nickel on graphite on manganese to critically review what are the challenges around our supply chain. And they might not all be concentrated at the mines, but these are complex supply chains with complex chemical procedures and processing up to the recycling. So looking at the full life cycle and seeing how can we ensure that the green revolution that is ongoing and then hopefully speeding up translates into into a a hopeful and, and prosperous future for the often vulnerable communities that enable these changes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about those sorts of things in future. Uh, this is not, this is the start of the conversation, I think, David, from what you've, what you've said and from the, the conversations we've been having over the last year or so. This is just starting out and this is the start of the whole battery industry, really. Uh, so there's a long way to go and uh, there's a lot to do. But I think I see a lot of positives in there. Um, I think one would expect one might expect to have a conversation about cobalt and it be a wholly negative conversation, but actually uh, it's really great talking with you guys because we can see the positivity and we can see the opportunities. This is a, a burgeoning industry that could be done really well if only we we just try and, and, and put the right things in place to make sure that happens. So I'm sure this won't be the last time that we talk, David. Um, I'm sure we'll be hearing much more from Fair Cobalt Alliance in the future. 
Thanks so much for that interview, Manny. I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, I actually, have, I just have so much respect for what they're doing on the ground, and yeah, David's insight is like serious gold mine, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, it's it can it's it is quite a scary issue, isn't it? And I think a lot of people shy away from talking about it because it is is so controversial, and there have been some seriously unacceptable things occurring. But they really just face the issue head on and they, they're doing what they can to make positive change. And I think that's really, really amazing rather than kind of turning turning our backs to it. Yeah. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I always love talking to David. Uh, it's <laughs> great to have him uh, on board. And uh, yeah, I really respect that the work that they do. And at some point, again, in the future, we should talk to them a bit more about the, the work they've been doing in other industries you know, gold, zinc, other other metals that they have a vast experience in and we can learn so much from. So I'm sure we'll definitely be back talking to David and his colleagues again. But yeah, just reflecting on some of what he was saying, I thought it was great that he made such a big point about reducing demand because yeah, we were talking great. about that so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have the, to be validated. It is. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I mean, he's absolutely right. You know, as he's saying, the, there's going to be immense pressure on the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, demand is way up, going to outstrip the production. Mm-hmm. So we really need to think very carefully about that as an industry. And But positively I think that's great that we talked about the ways that we can do that and that's mm-hmm. that's where the power lies with us and in, in our ability to change our battery chemistries our ability to reuse some of those minerals um so I thought it was really useful that he, he said that and that that's something that we as an industry can actually have some active power over mm-hmm. we can actually it's achievable isn't it the other thing that was really nice to him to talk about was that collective action wasn't it because in another way that you can feel so powerless as an individual or a small company where you're so far removed from an issue actually thinking about what we can do together to pull together resources and have these conversations that's really again where we can start to affect change like no one individual is going to be able to do this it's a massive systemic global issue and so yeah we're going to need to start to work together and that's the other great thing that you mentioned was about talking to the Congolese people and making sure that that solution includes them which we see that so often as well in climate conversations don't we about not just coming up with solutions isolated actually talking to the people that it affects yeah yeah I think it's very easy with the whole extraction mining debate uh, when you're talking about really difficult environmental abuses and human rights abuses, particularly to just look at it and say that's really bad and be quite um, paternalistic about it and say that's awful, we must fix it for you, mm-hmm. uh, and that we that we must we see a problem in your country, uh, and you know we'll donate money and we'll do something to to make that better. So that I mean, and we shouldn't shy away from the fact that it's a really it's a very difficult issue uh, mm-hmm. and that there are really bad things happening, and and we we absolutely should acknowledge that but the answer isn't just us fixing it and mm-hmm. I say us I mean sort of the global north the, mm-hmm. the western world developed capitalist nations I, I think it's, it's it's easy for us to just say well we've got a solution here it is what David's talking about is saying well actually yes there are lots of different problems going on 
But the, you know, people in uh, Congolese people, for example, this is their jobs, this is their livelihoods. They want it to be better. They don't want it to go away. They need jobs and those jobs are there for their community. And those mines can be a positive thing. So whilst we shouldn't shy away from the abuses, I think it's really important to say, well, how do we work with them? What do they want? Mm -hmm. How can how can they how can they be part of their own destiny, if you like, you know, instead of us imposing that upon them? How can they make the best of their amazing resources in their country mm-hmm. to create an economy and a community and a life that works for them not one that that supports our lifestyle totally and yeah it's important to remember that's not it's not going to happen overnight is it um it's we um live in a world of quick fixes don't we but this is a it's a global and really ingrained issue and it's going to it's going to take its time and um we're all going to have to be patient but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try yeah is it worth us just touching on what some of those solutions are just to just to finish on i think it's just worth saying that we have highlighted some of these solutions and that we shouldn't go away from this feeling powerless mm-hmm. so i guess the things that that have come away for me is that that point about we we can reduce demand yep. so we can do that we shouldn't be taking these industries away from people but we can reduce demand and reduce that pressure mm-hmm. we we have one thing we haven't talked about is uh, standards and transparency and how we that mm-hmm. applies around, across the supply chain um, I know it's something we've talked about quite a lot, something mm-hmm. we'd like to do. And it comes back to that point about collective action, doesn't it? You know, how can we feel empowered as a as a group of companies, as an industry, as a group of people to actually do something? I think we can work together to create standards and mm-hmm. we can improve the transparency or we can try and improve mm-hmm. the transparency of those supply chains as something that we can affect in some way ourselves so is, is there anything any, oh, else sorry, sorry I've just said all the things <laughs> <laughs> no I mean well the final thing that that we can do that uh, David touched on I think he's said the phrase responsible sourcing starts by taking responsibility so I totally respect that it's a really really hard thing to do but I think there's a difference between responsibility and accountability and I think when we're using the word responsibility, we are again talking about the collective responsibility. So how can we pull together resources? How can we lobby lobby the government to put in place good standards and policy? And how can we, yeah, create businesses that are encouraging positive consumer use, etc. So as much as we shouldn't be pointing the finger, it, it is time for us to stand up and take responsibility and use our use that collective responsibility for collective action that's a good quote right there sophie <laughs> we'll use that one again in future <laughs> yeah i know I, I i completely agree i think we've 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 also gone through some of the opportunities to do that as well i guess it's just like a final reflection from me before we finish up because i feel like everyone spent a, if you're still here thank you spent a good <laughs> amount of time listening to us but i guess one thing that i often think about when is in this debate is that you know, we have to acknowledge the problem. I think shying away from the fact that there's an issue here is not the right thing to do. Uh, we do need to work with other, other industries. This is about collective action. So let's talk to the EV industry. Let's talk to those the, the portable battery industry and try and create solutions together. We should absolutely do that. So let's acknowledge the problem and then we can fix it before it starts to get even worse, get really bad. We are using storage and batteries and part of, as part of that in order to fix the problem of climate change. That's how I see it. And maybe that's going a bit a bit too broad, but it is. It's, it's there. It's, it's a technical solution to fixing climate change, to support renewables. So climate change is a massive environmental and social problem. 
So why would we create further environmental social problems in, whilst we're fixing that one? You know, we, if we're creating a new industry that does a really amazing thing and helps us to get to net zero, let's make that industry sustainable from the off. Let's mm-hmm. do that now. And we have the capability to do that now. Like you said, Sophie, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. But I think we're, we're in a really privileged position where we're just starting out here and mm-hmm. we can do that and we can take that opportunity, take the bull by the horns and make sure that we are creating an industry that in 2050 we'll be proud of and that we can have for the future. Okay, well, thanks for everyone for listening. Um, that's a really good chat. I feel like lots of good sound bites there from Sophie and I. Um, thanks, Sophie, for coming to our first your first Regen podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It was very enjoyable. <laughs> um, and yeah, we'll, we'll be continuing to discuss, to discuss these issues uh, our working groups and within the ESN. So if you're interested in any, in any of that, come and have a look on our website and join us as a member or just get in touch with any thoughts that you have on, on how we can start discussing and better addressing this issue. But thanks everyone for listening. Thank you.